1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculation rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So uh, we are continuing our series. This is week number two in a series we're calling uh, uh, First Timothy Blueprints for the Household of God. Uh, the whole idea here, the reason that we're calling it that is because the book of First Timothy is, in many ways, blueprints for the household of God, right? Uh, sort of basic foundational truths and building blocks for what it means to be the church, what it means for us to be a healthy church, a church that is centered on the gospel, a church that is centered on Jesus Christ. And so uh, we're going to be walking through over the next several weeks uh, the book of First Timothy, going uh, verse by verse, and uh, this afternoon uh, we're going to be looking at verses three through five. And I'm particularly excited to be with you guys. Um, I feel like I haven't seen you in a while, which I know I just was here last week, but like this, I was gone this whole week, right? So I was gone in Denver uh, with, uh, at, at the North America Conference for our church planting network, Acts 29. Uh, there was like 1,300 people uh, from many different countries, um, which I was a little confused about because I called it the North America Conference. But there was like people from 17 different countries, um, got to hang out with and, and meet and chat with this dude a couple times who's planting a church uh, in the middle of the bush in South Africa. Um, really excited to just know and see and hear firsthand the great work that our network is doing uh, and just to worship with uh, uh, people and sit under the scriptures with people from all around our network. Uh, right after that, uh, I spent some time uh, in the mountains with uh, my, my pastor's cohort, like me and 10 other guys, uh, to just sort of brainstorm, uh, do some mastermind sort of planning stuff together, uh, care for one another, get advice from one another, get coached uh, for me personally. And it was just good for my soul. Um, but it made me really excited for this next season of ministry that we have as a church uh, and just really pumped uh, to just be here with you guys. So let me pray for us and we'll get started uh, continuing our series in First Timothy. Father God, uh, I'm grateful for my friends here. Grateful for these brothers and sisters uh, that you've called uh, to yourself, that you've called to this church. And I pray, Lord, that as we are working our way through these verses, as we're working our way through 1 Timothy, that you would just give us a compelling, awesome, wonderful, beautiful vision of your church and what it means to be a church that is just so in love with Jesus and grounded in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's in Christ's name I pray, amen. All right, so yesterday I was flying home from Denver. I was at the airport, and uh, while I was there, uh, as I approached the security line, I start going through my pockets and emptying them out of like any trash I had because I didn't, I didn't want to have to do the same thing, you know, at the front of the security line. I didn't want to have to do that again at the main checkpoint. And uh, I pull out of my, my pocket this like long receipt. Uh, I bought a pack of gum 
at CVS earlier in the day. And you guys are laughing because you probably know that CVS receipts are legendary, right? They're legendary for their length. It's like the length of a scarf, right? Like I, I bought just a single pack of gum and they gave me enough receipt to like throw away every single piece of gum like in that pack. And I didn't need the receipt, right? And so I didn't want to have to deal with it at the, at the main checkout area. And so I, I start to crumple it up, walk to the, to the trash can to throw it away. Uh, and this guy nearby goes, hey, hey, wait, can I have that? And I'm like, what? I like, turn around and I see this guy. He's like, yeah, like, can, are you going to... You're going to throw that? And I'm like, it's a receipt. You know, I don't know if he was mistaken or something. Like, it's just a receipt. And he's like, no, can I have that? And I was just, you know, I hand it over to him. And I'm like, what for? Uh, and he holds up this little uh, figurine. And he goes, for Iron Man. Right? <laughs> he has this little Iron Man figurine. He tells me how he just bought it from the Uber driver uh, that took him to the airport. And he wants to protect it before he places it in his backpack. He, he went to the bathroom, put all these like paper towels and toilet paper around it. But he saw this long receipt. And he's like, I get to hold that all in place now. He was like really excited. And I got a kick out of it because he's like putting armor around Iron Man. Right? Love it. So, uh, but it made me think like it's amazing what we're willing to do for the things that, that we value. I got a new iPhone recently, just last week, and guess what I purchased with my phone? A new case, right? Like, when we see some, someone with a new smartphone but no case, we think like, man, that person's either really brave or really reckless, right? Like, or they're a rookie, right? The first phone, don't know what they're doing. But the reason we do this. The reason that we, we protect our packages with, like, wrap, with bubble wrap, the reason our hotel rooms have safe boxes, the reason our, our, our phones have cases and our new cars have alarms is we want to defend and protect what we value, what we consider important and valuable. What about the doctrines of the gospel of Jesus Christ? What about the doctrines of God's glorious grace? Like, how much is that gospel worth? The Bible calls it immeasurable, precious, priceless. If you're in our home groups, you know, we're going through the parables right now, and it talks about how the, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure that's hidden in the field. And when this guy finds it, he real reconceals it, and then he goes and in joy and in gladness, he sells all that he has so he can purchase that plot of land, that, that field. The gospel is like that. And here's the thing. You can still use a phone with a cracked screen, but you can't truly know, love, and, and follow Jesus with a, with a cracked gospel. Uh, if we think about it, we spend more time protecting what can be replaced than preserving and protecting the things that cannot be replaced. But if you value something, if you value something, you will protect it. And when you become a follower of Jesus, the gospel becomes the thing that you value the most. And to be clear, when we talk about protecting the gospel, we're not talking about like helping it out, right? We're not talking about helping it as though the gospel needs our help, needs our protection. What we're talking about is protecting it in the sense that we're protecting its importance in our churches, we're talking about protecting its, its place at the center of our church, protecting its purity 
in our teaching. And that's what Paul gets at right here in verse 3. Right after his introductory greeting, which we went over last week, right here at the beginning of his letter in verse 3, he says this. Verse 3 and 4. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. So this is the first thing we see in the main body of Paul's letter. The first thing we see in the main body of Paul's letter is this this charge, this command, this charge to Timothy, to Pastor Timothy, to protect the church from false teachings and from false teachers. Now, at first glance, uh, it kind of sounds unloving, right? It it, it charged certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. Kind of sounds narrow-minded, right? Like self-righteous religion or like overly confident, uh, oppressive ideology, the kind of posture that looks down on other people. Where's the love and acceptance here, we might ask? Where's the humility in charging others to be silent? Yet Paul says in verse 5 that the aim of this charge is love. This is a passage about both truth and love. And what you'll see is you really can't divorce the one from the other. You see, this is one of the primary roles for Christian ministers, This is one of the primary roles for pastors like Timothy. One of the primary roles in Christian ministry is that because a pastor loves his people, he not only contends for truths that bring us hope, but confronts lies that bring us harm. Because a pastor loves his people, he not only contends for truths that bring us hope, but confronts lies that bring us harm. So that's what we're going to be looking at throughout the rest of our text. Here's point number one. Paul's heart is to protect Christians from false teaching. That's his heart. He wants to protect his brothers and sisters in Christ from false teaching. When Paul charges Timothy to stop others from teaching, he calls it different doctrine. That word doctrine is another word in the Greek for just teaching. And so for Paul, who's the apostle sent by Jesus to bring the gospel to the rest of the world, different doctrine can also be described as false teaching. Look, the gospel of Jesus Christ is either right or it's wrong. It can't be a matter of opinion. It can't be a little right and a lot wrong or a lot right and a little wrong. It can't, it's not open to interpretation or opinion. It's either, you either take it as it is and it's either right or wrong. And if there's only one true gospel, which the New Testament tells us there is, then all these different gospels must be false gospels. Paul says in chapter two, he says that God wants sinners to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth that there's only one God and one mediator between God and humanity, and that's Christ Jesus. Jesus himself, he famously claimed to be the way, the truth, and the life. He said, no one comes to the Father except through me. And so if we're going to trust in what Jesus said, 
If we're going to take Jesus at his word, then the most loving thing, the most virtuous thing, the most true thing would be to protect the truth about him at all costs. It's actually false teachers who are the self-righteous ones. Because they insist that, that their teachings, rather than Jesus's and the new apostles of the New Testament, they, that the false teachers believe that their teachings are the way, the truth, and the life, and not Jesus's. And they're leading people away from eternal joy in the process. And that's why this, this charge from Paul to Timothy, that's why this is the first thing that Paul gets into in his letter. He knows that false teaching is an issue at the church, otherwise he wouldn't address it. And he sees it as a life or death situation. He's not giving this charge uh, because he's a strict authoritarian, but because he's a loving father in the faith. If you actually read Paul's other letters, you'll see that his normal flow is after the greeting is he starts giving thanks to the people that he's writing to. But he doesn't do that here in 1 Timothy. He just goes straight into this charge. He just goes straight into, Timothy, get these people to stop teaching those things. Timothy, get these, those people, those certain people, get them to stop teaching doctrines different from what, what you and I teach. You see, false doctrines, they need to be addressed because true gospel doctrine is the very lifeline of the local church. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says to the Corinthian church, he tells them, he says, look, I'm giving you the gospel. And as I give you the gospel, this is the gospel that I preached, the gospel that you have received, the gospel that you stand in, the gospel that is saving you. And he says, hold fast to it. I preached it to you, you received it, you stand on it, it's saving you, hold fast to it. The gospel is the hope that we all need. It's the hope of the world. And so it therefore needs to be central to all that we say and all that we do as the church of Jesus Christ. Mark Dever makes this point clear when he says the church itself is a means of grace, not because it grants salvation apart from faith, but because it is the God-ordained means that his spirit uses to proclaim the saving gospel, to illustrate the saving gospel, and to confirm the gospel. The church is the conduit through which the benefits of Christ's death, in other words, the gospel, normally come. And so, so Paul says, hey, Timothy, let me just get right to it, all right? Let me just shoot straight, get right to it, because the truth of that gospel is being threatened, and it needs to be protected from the threats that are coming up from within. Look at verse 3 again. He says, I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine." He says, hey, do this just as I urged you before. He's saying, look, hey, just like I told you before. Now, where is it that he said this before? We actually see where he said this before in Acts 20. If you turn over there in Acts 20, verse 28 uh, through 31, this is Paul speaking to the elders of Ephesus, and this includes Pastor Timothy, who he's writing to in 1 Timothy. So here's what he says in Acts 20. Paul says to this group of elders and pastors, he says, pay careful attention to yourselves 
and to all the flock. It's a metaphor for the church, the sheep, the flock, in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers or elders to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish every one with tears. Man, it must have caused Paul great pain to say those words in Acts 20. To say to these, this group of pastors, hey, look, I'm, I'm going to barely be gone for a minute when wolves are going to creep in to devour the flock, this church. And it's an interesting verb that he uses in verse 31 when he says, remember for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish every single one of those guys. That word admonish is another word for warning. Warning. And it's the type of warning that is used uh, like in a, in a parental way, all right? So that's a parental verb, kind of like how we warn our kids, right? Don't touch the oven. Don't run next to the pool. Don't run into the street like that without looking left and right. Don't use that tone with your brother or sister. Don't hang out with those kids who bring out the worst in you. It's the type of admonishing and warning that comes from a parent who cares. That's further proof that Paul's not being mean. He's not being narrow-minded. His concern here is, is parental. Part of what it means to be pastoral is to be parental. You see, pastors have a parental type of role because they are entrusted to care for God's children that are, that are under their care. And it looks like the elders of Ephesus didn't heed Paul's warning sufficiently enough because by the time of 1 Timothy's writing, what he worried about, what Paul worried about, had actually come to pass. Wolves, false teachers, have risen up to devour the flock of God. Now, wolves are savage, right? They're ferocious. They're dangerous. You don't want to mess with the wolf. Have you guys seen the movie Gray or The Gray with Liam Neeson? Right? Even Liam Neeson couldn't kill him, right? That guy trained Batman, Obi-Wan, Darth Vader, the dead rabbits of New York, right? He couldn't beat the wolves. And Paul knows. He knows that these wolves must be stopped. His concern is like that of a spiritual father that doesn't want to see his children get hurt. He doesn't want to see his children get devoured. He knows that false doctrine leads to a false gospel and a misguided trust in false saviors. It's life or death. Life or death. High stakes. Not to be taken lightly. And false doctrine, number two, is deceitful and dangerous. Point number two, false doctrine is both deceitful and dangerous. Look at the end of, of verse three, when Paul tells Timothy to charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. That, that, that word for charge is a military term, right? It's, it's a very action verb. There's no room for being casual and passive when the church is being threatened by false doctrine. 
No, a good shepherd doesn't just watch his sheep endure attacks from, from wolves. No, a good shepherd acts urgently. And now, what are we talking about when we, when we say false doctrine? Like, what do we mean when we talk about false teaching? Like, obviously, there are some issues of doctrine that humble Christians can have friendly disagreements and debates with uh, on, like, like issues of baptism, right? Like, baptizing uh, infants or believers, uh, the, or maybe how about the order of events, uh, of, of end time events? Those kind of issues are not what we're talking about here. The doctrines we're talking about are the ones that speak of ultimate reality. Like there are some things where having a false belief like doesn't really matter, right? Like if I said Colorado is really hot this time of year, not true, right? I just came from there. I know it's not true, but it's not really going to harm you if you believe me or not. It's not an ultimate reality. When we talk about ultimate realities, we're talking about questions like, does God exist? And can you know that he exists? Is human nature good or evil? And is there a right and wrong way to live? And do you know right and wrong from the revelation that comes from God's word or from your own subjective feelings? Who is Jesus? What has he done in history? Does it matter? What does it mean to place your faith in him? What does it mean to follow him? Does it matter how we live? And is there a final judgment? Those are the questions of ultimate reality. They're life or death. They're saved or unsaved. And it's dangerous, so dangerous to get them wrong. Doctrine matters because what you believe, especially about these ultimate realities, is going to determine what you live for and how you live. What you believe about ultimate reality is the basis for everything you do, whether you consider yourself a person of faith or not, whether you consider yourself a Christian or not. How you answer those questions, what you believe about ultimate realities is the very basis for everything that you do. I don't know what the last TV show my wife watched. I'm guessing it's Gilmore Girls, right? It doesn't matter what I think about that because it bears no weight on our marriage. But knowing who my wife is, knowing her name, her likes, her dislikes, her nature, her character, those things are going to determine how I love her, and how I live with her, how I treat her. And in the same way, if, it, if you decide that it doesn't matter who Jesus is, whether or not you go to church, what it means to live for him, what you believe about the gospel. In each and every single one of those cases, it's going to shape and it's going to form the way that you live before God and others. Joe Thorne, I love the way that, that he puts this. He's a pastor out in the Chicagoland area, a friend of ours. He says, there really is such a thing as bad and dangerous theology. While there are some matters on which believers differ without much harm, there are many doctrines that produce real fruit, good or bad, in the lives of people who embrace them. So we must be careful to guard ourselves from any doctrine that leads us away from the truth of God and into ungodliness. I want you to look now at verse 4. Let's continue down. Verse 4, he says, 
uh, you know, charge these people not, not to teach different doctrines, and then verse 4, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Now, what is he talking about? What's happening is that these false teachers, they were taking all these extra biblical writings. They were taking writings outside of the Bible, different stories and myths about the Old Testament, but not included in the Old Testament. They were taking all these outside of the Bible writings, and they were using them to add to God's word and saying, this has authority. And when we get to chapter 4, we actually see that they were teaching things like you shouldn't get married and you should abstain abstain from eating certain foods. Uh, What was happening is they were adding rules and regulations to the gospel that were not in God's word. They were also taking endless genealogies from the Old Testament and creating spiritual meaning from them that that was never intended. It's kind of like people who obsess over the numbers of the Bible, trying to make them mean something that they aren't supposed to mean, or people who obsess over end times prophecies and equate knowing all the different charts with knowing Christ himself. In other words, what happened is these people, they they were making something other than faith in Christ necessary for salvation. Look, we need to recognize that the false gospels that disguise themselves as the gospel that there are many of them in our current cultural moment. It wasn't just the Ephesian church in the first century dealing with them. There are false gospels disguising themselves as the true gospel in our current cultural moment. Here are a few popular false gospels prevalent in our text or our context today. Um, First, we could call it the piety gospel. Right, the piety gospel. This gospel says salvation comes by keeping up with a list of rules and regulations, right? Being pious and overly religious. This is where you know that you are saved by grace, but but you believe that becoming Christ-like is now all up to you. Right? And so instead of believing what Jesus said, that you should obey out of thankfulness because you're already accepted by God, you say, no, I'm going to obey in order to be accepted by God. And your identity and self-worth are based mainly in how, in how hard you work or how moral you are. And so you start to look down on others you think are more lazy or immoral than you. Or maybe you start to look down on yourself. And shame, because you know you can never measure up to these standards. But the true gospel, the true gospel says your identity and self-worth are centered on the one who died for you. You're saved by grace. And so you can't look down on those who believe or practice something different from you. You say with the apostle Paul, no, I, I only am what I am by the grace of God. By the grace of God, I am what I am. Another popular gospel, false gospel in our cultural context is what we might call the prosperity gospel. And actually, what is called the prosperity gospel? We can call this, uh, uh, this is like with this gospel, it teaches that Jesus is, is not so much like a savior who reconciles us with, with God, but he's more of like a means to health and wealth and prosperity. And look, this can be a tricky one because Jesus is mentioned frequently in the prosperity gospel. Scripture is quoted often in the prosperity gospel, but it's usually out of context. And what they say is things like, you can have your best life right now if you just believe it hard enough. And because this gospel, 
This false gospel thrives in a culture like ours that idolizes comfort. It denies that Jesus is a suffering servant who calls us to pick up our crosses and follow him. But the Bible is clear that our best life, our best life is not found in anything this world offers us, but in that faith is not a means to possessions and wealth. The third false gospel in our cultural context is what we might call the personal gospel. The personal gospel, we, or also like the self-help gospel. This gospel says your problem isn't so much your sin nature, but your problem is that you aren't the best version of yourself right now. And so the point of Jesus' death wasn't to atone for your sins, but to prove your worth and to give you power to reach your potential. This false gospel is, is really predominant in upper middle class suburban communities like ours, right? And see, self-help preaching looks more like a motivational or an inspirational speech and less like proclaiming what the word of God says. There are Bible references, there's talk about Jesus, except the focus is not on Christ Jesus, but on you on how you can become a better person, be more productive, slay your giants, part your Red Sea. And who doesn't want to hear a message about themselves every single week? But the problem is, the Bible is not about you. The Bible's not about me. It's not about us. It's not about you. It's, the Bible's going to reference you, but it's not about you. It's not about the Lord, like, holding your face, going, you're amazing. I'm so in love with you. You must be so tired because you've been running through my mind all day long. The Bible's not about how awesome you are. The, awesome is, the Bible's about how awesome God is. It's about his beauty, his splendor, his majesty, and what we need most is not to look at ourselves. What we need most is to see him, to behold his glory, to be led deeper into the depths of who he is, his nature, his character, his attributes, his word. That's what we need. That's what we're made for. The personal gospel, the self-help gospel is an affront to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the fourth and last gospel I think that's popular in our cultural context is what we might call the political gospel. The political gospel. Shots fired, right? <laughs> this is where people will proclaim Jesus as Lord, but they'll place their ultimate hope in a political party or, or system. There's a clear difference in what they, in what they claim to believe and what they functionally believe. Look, it's not that politics is unimportant, and it's not that political outcomes are unimportant, but if a political outcome is more important to you than an eternal outcome, then man, you've got it all backwards. You've got it backwards. You see, our hope, our Christian hope assures us that no matter who wins the next election cycle, our future is secure. We don't have to be afraid. We don't have to be scared. And generations from now, <coughs> generations from now, if and when our government and our nation are long gone, the church is still going to be standing because nothing can stop it. It's unstoppable. 
And look, we could go on and on and on about different false gospels. But I think these are the four most prevalent ones in our time and context. And the problem, Paul says, is that these myths, verse 4, promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. These myths promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. (laughs) Now, that word stewardship basically means like the things that God has given to us. Or, or, or probably put more clearly, it's, it's the things that God has entrusted to us as stewards. Speculations, there's no solid ground there. But the stewardship from God, what God has entrusted us, that's the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Right? What has God entrusted the church with? His gospel. His gospel. That's the most solid ground that there is. And the thing about false teaching is that false teaching often sounds like the Bible, but it isn't. Because false teaching tells a different story about who we are, about what's wrong with us, who we're supposed to be, and how to fix it and where we're headed. The false teaching tells us a different story of that narrative. But what God has trusted his church with what God has entrusted his church throughout history is the pure gospel of how the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus has satisfied our greatest need. Our greatest need. Which is not to be impressively religious. It's not to be uh, uh, prosperous and have lots of possessions. It's not to be the self-actualized version of ourselves. It's not to have political power. No, our greatest need is to be forgiven and reconciled to God. And that's what the true gospel, the pure gospel of Jesus Christ has done. It tells us that God is triune, that Jesus is the eternal God that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of a virgin, lived perfectly, died an atoning death on the cross in our place for our sins, that he rose in victory over Satan's sin and death, and that he's coming back to judge the living and the dead, and he's gonna make all things new. And if any of us sinners turn to him in faith, then we'll be reconciled with God, transformed in this life, and live forever in joy in the next. You see, it is only by the cross of Jesus that we can have salvation. It's only in the cross of Jesus that we have eternal life. It's by grace alone, through faith alone, and the finished work of Christ on the cross alone. Our calling is not to make the gospel more appealing by adding to it or by changing it, but to take the pure gospel to the people around us. Let's be a people who rest in that true and pure gospel, the saving work of Jesus. Let's display to the watching world around us that our only hope is in him. Number three, the aim of this charge is love. The aim of this charge is love. In contrast to the different doctrines and myths that promote speculation 
and that lead people away from the real and living God, the Apostle Paul's aim is actually loving people to God. Loving people to God. Verse 5 says the aim of our charge is love. That's the aim. The aim of our charge is love. Love that issues that comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Look, there can be all kinds of aims for teachers, preachers, and churches. Some teachers' aim is, 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 is one of selfish gain, right? Sometimes people get into ministry because that's where they find their worth, right? That's how they try to attain and work for their own righteousness. Or they get in the ministry to be, to be popular or to be liked. But the charge for faithful pastors to confront false teaching is a charge that comes, Paul says, from love, from service. Pastors teach out of a love for God and out of a love for, for you, the church, God's people, not out of selfish gain. It's not being mean. It's not being nitpicky when you confront false teachings. No, the point and motive is and should be love. <clears throat> and Paul is careful here to define exactly what he means by love. Look at what he says in, 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 what he says in this verse. He says, it's, it's a love that issues from a pure heart. When the Bible talks about your heart, that is the deepest part of who you are. And why do we need a pure heart to love? It's because we're tainted. We're sinners. Our hearts are deceitful, depraved, uh, tainted. That's why, that's why David prayed, create in me a, a clean or a pure heart, because he knew that he could not love others unless God did a work of grace in his heart first. Paul also says this love needs to come from a good conscience, in other words, you don't have any bad motives, you don't have any ulterior motives, but it's truly caring, truly, in the, in, in the deepest sense of that word, truly caring about the truth of Jesus and truly caring about the false teacher and expressing the kindness of God towards them in the way that we treat one another, hoping that they'll turn from error and come back under the authority of God's word. He also says that this love needs to issue or come from a sincere faith, a faith that is sincere. In other words, there's no hypocrisy there. It's not just an outward display of faith, but a, a wholehearted embracing of all of who Christ is in all of life. See, the point, the point of confronting false teaching is not to be heavy-handed or mean, but the point is love love for the truths of the gospel, and love for the people who need the gospel. That's at the heart of who we are. And look, this is why at, at, at King's Cross, every element of our ministry here is centered on the gospel. You've maybe heard us say before that we never graduate from the gospel. We never move on from it. Christians need the gospel just as much as non-Christians do. That's why Paul keeps writing to these letters to these churches. Man, I can't wait to come to you and preach the gospel to you. Remind the gospel to you. 
This is why our liturgy, right, with our call to worship, our confession, our assurance, or the way that we do communion every single week, like, like this is why our liturgy is shaped by the gospel story. We want to rehearse the gospel, embody it as a community every single week. You don't come here as consumers. You come here as participants. We walk through this together. It's also why we sing the songs that we do. You'll notice the songs that we choose, sometimes they're old hymns, sometimes they're modern contemporary songs, but the theology in them, the doctrine in them is rich. You can always tell that it's about the, 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 the risen Jesus Christ, right? There's not like vague language that could be like interchangeable with like sung with, towards someone that you're dating, right? It's also why we preach the way that we do. Why every once in a while we'll go through these topical series like we just did recently when we walked through relationships by the book. But it's also, it's also why like our normal uh, f- flow and rhythm here is to go through, through books of the Bible. When we do that, we don't, we don't get the, the, the privilege or the convenience of skipping verses and, and things that, that might land a little hard on the ears. It's the purity of God's word. It's the truth of the gospel. We need the true doctrines of grace because in them we find life. What is, what is your goal? What is your goal when you sit under the teaching ministry of this church? What is your goal when you sit under the preaching at King's Cross? Is it to be equipped with knowledge for the sake of knowledge so you can have all your answers right? Is it to experience some motivational talk, be like, I can take on the week now? Or is it to encounter the gospel of amazing grace, the gospel that saved you, the gospel that is saving you, and the gospel that empowers you to love God and love others? Love God, love one another, and love others in that order. I want to close by just pointing out um, maybe a few ways that we can respond to a message like this. If false teaching needs to be confronted in a spirit of love, if that's one of the primary ministries that God has handed on to each church and every generation, then what does that mean for, for us? What does that mean for the average church member? Number one, you speak the truth in love. Some people are all truth, right? They think the answer is to know more and to try harder, uh, but there's no love, no grace, and no kindness. And so they become heavy-handed. They become authoritarian and cold. But look, we don't want, at this church, we don't want to like pit truth and love against each other. We don't want to divorce uh, truth and love from each other. This is truth without love is just cold and wooden. Love without truth is merely sentimental and frail. But truth in love, that requires conviction and it requires courage. And you need both of those to truly love well. Next, I wanna suggest that you study our confessional standards. 
If you've been around King's Cross for a while, you'll notice uh, that we we give a nod to uh, a lot of the creeds and catechisms and confessions uh, that have been preserved for the for the growth of the church throughout the centuries. Right? Creeds and confessions—they're just tools. They're just tools. They don't replace the Bible. They rather point to the Bible. They're tools that the church has used to speak about God clearly and to speak about him faithfully. And they've been used throughout generations to guide Christians closer to God and and sometimes, oftentimes actually, to distinguish true Christianity from false teaching. There's an old cliche that those who forget history are doomed to repeat it. And that's why we recite from these creeds and catechisms like every single week, to remind ourselves of our historic heritage, honor our heritage, but also to protect the purity of our teaching here as a church. Lastly, I want to suggest that you pray for your pastor and leaders. Pray for me. Pray for others that that stand behind this um, pulpit. Pray for the leaders in our church. Like, it's, it's, it's easy to fall into the trap of thinking, like, like, prayer isn't much, as if it's insignificant. But man, we're told, we're told all throughout God's word that the prayer of a righteous person is powerful. It's powerful and it's effective. And one of the greatest and most powerful gifts that you can give, like, me as your pastor is prayer. Pray that the Lord will keep me grounded in the truth, in the scriptures, in the gospel. Pray that that we as a church would be faithful to his word. Pray that we would be bold and courageous, filled with the spirit because of his word. And pray that the doctrines of grace would create also a culture of grace. And that the leaders of this church would have the conviction and the courage to protect that culture in a spirit of love. See, the heart, the heart of Christian ministry is protecting the centrality of the gospel in our church. The thing that makes false teachers bad is not that they deviate from just like abstract set of Christian principles. What makes false teaching bad is that they tread on the one who embodies the very truth of God. And at the bottom of it all, at the bottom of it all is this wonderful news that while you and I were sinners, somebody came and bought us with his blood. You are not your own if you are in Christ. You are not your own. You were bought with a price, the blood of Jesus Christ, God's son. And so look at him. Look at him, gaze at his beauty, marvel at his works. Come, get to know who he is, study his word, walk in his ways, do that and see how he's better than the myths and narratives of our culture. And then you'll fall yourself or you'll find yourself falling in love with the king of the cross all over again. He's the way. He's the truth, and he's the life. Amen. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you'd come by and visit on a Sunday morning. 
for meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.